to a seminary and sit in a, a classroom about some introductory principles about who the church is. We're going to cover a tremendous number of scriptures today, and we'll move through them pretty quickly. Uh, we'll make available to you a handout that'll be out on the table next week that you can take home and, and look those up and study them. Tim is already working and gotten them published on, on some of our app and website stuff. But uh, for today, if you're a note taker, you can just jot these references down quickly, and otherwise you can just follow along on the screen as we go through them. Um, but the point of this message is just for us to go through who we are and why we're here and what we're about. Um, I hope this is helpful as we especially welcome new faces and new people to this building. It should be natural, I would think, for you to, to wonder who are these people and what are they about and how do they understand themselves in terms of God's word. And so from the very beginning, when this church was founded, there were a couple verses that were foundational for us that were cornerstone verses of cornerstone, you might say. And one of those was Ephesians 2, 19 through 21, where we read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, and it's referring to the spiritual kind, those who are separated from the life in God and are lost in their sins. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then here it is, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, we believe in and worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of course, but God, the Trinity, has given God the Son to the church to be the door through which we enter into a relationship with him. And so he is the foundation, the cornerstone on which this ministry is built and on which our lives are built. And that's what the church becomes, the building that is built on Jesus and on his word. It says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And then we look at 1 Corinthians 3.11 and we find this, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is only one truth, there's one way, and it's him. It's Christ the Lord. This is an unpopular message in our world, in our cultural moment. Uh, we live in a time of what's known as pluralism or postmodernism where truth is what you want it to be and anyone can have their own truth and all truths can essentially be equal. Um, but we know, of course, just logically that that's impossible, that a thing can't be something and not that thing at the same time and in the same way. It's called the law of non-contradiction. Basically, I can't be married and a bachelor at the same time, right? It's, a, it's contradictory. It, it doesn't work with truth and with reality. It's the same with our faith. It's the same with Christ the Lord, that all these competing worldviews and religious systems, they can't all be true because they're exclusive. Islam, for instance, says that Jesus was not the Son of God. Christianity says that he was. They can't both be true. You can't just say, live your truth, and it's fine. One of those or none of them is true. That's the only option. And so we believe that Christ is the Lord, the Son of God, through whom we have salvation, and that he has been, and we pray always will be, the foundation of this ministry. And so on our website, if any of you have visited it, you might see this statement that we've had up there for a while, and it says this, Cornerstone Community Church is a body of believers who exist to glorify God. That's our primary purpose in being here. And then how do we do that? Here are some of the ways. By knowing him, growing in him, and leading others toward the same. Now for this message, what I want to do is break down what we mean by those three categories. But first, what about the first part? That we exist to glorify God. The verses we look to for that, and there could be more, but here are a few. Romans 11.36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. Everything is for his glory. And this is not because he's an egomaniac. There is no greater being of which our minds can even conceive than the Lord God. And who should be worthy of all praise and glory if not him? It's right and it's fitting that he be glorified. And he shares his glory and he brings good into our lives by being glorified. It's everyone wins when God is glorified. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, not to the people of this church, not to this building, not to our own kingdoms and lives, none of that. To your name, the living God, be glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And then Psalm 138.2 says this, I bow down toward your holy temple. We're talking about church language here. And give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. And then here it is, for you have exalted above all things. Higher than anything else is this, your name and your word. We exist for the, God, the glory of God. Now, there are specific ways that God has called us to glorify him in how we understand ourselves as a church body and what we do with our time and our resources here in our lives. So now we'll spend some time breaking down these three areas in our, our statement. When we say Cornerstone Community Church is a body of believers who exist to glorify God by knowing him, what do we mean by knowing him? We mean not the kind of casual relationship that you might know an acquaintance or you're on a, some kind of a, a familiarity, but there's still a distance, but in the most personal, intimate, and saving way, God has called us into a, a relationship of knowing with himself where we know him deeply and personally through salvation, which is we're saved by his removing our sins from us and giving us his righteousness and putting new spiritual life into us. That's a free gift of grace that is received by us by placing our faith in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. This verse won't be new to many of you. If it is new to you, it's a great day to learn it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's largely what we mean by knowing him. And knowing God in this way, in this saving way, is only possible by what is called regeneration, which refers to the Holy Spirit's miraculous work of taking human beings who were dead spiritually in their sins and bringing them to new spiritual life, putting his spirit in them, overcoming the flesh that is perishing and giving us his spirit, bringing us back to the garden, you might say, where that relationship with God was lost. Now it's been made new. Only the Holy Spirit can do this work. John chapter three, verse three, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, when he says that, he's, he's saying, pay extra close attention. This is, this is true as... If nothing else is true, this is true. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That makes perfect sense, Jesus is saying. The only way for you to live forever with me is for you to have my life in you because you don't have it in you without me. Then we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. 
So this also is what we mean by knowing God in a personal and a saving way. Now, some people might look at the statement that we've given and, and say, yeah, that makes sense, and to know God is so important, but it seems like there are some essential parts of this that are missing from your statement, and I would say you're right, unless we understand that we mean other things to be under that umbrella of what it means to know him. And so perhaps some of you have already thought this in your minds, but we're going to cover it now. And here's a critical part of our understanding as a church body of what it means to know the Lord. And that is this, to know God is to love him and to be loved by him. That's inseparable from anything else we've said about knowing him in any other kind of way. That to know him in its purest, truest sense is to love him and to be loved by him. This is what it means to know God as well. Friends, be encouraged this morning that God saves us because he loves us. He has called you to be saved because he loves you. Is this expressed in any verse more famous than that of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He saves us because he loves us, and so that we can love him in return. In fact, this is the most important thing God said to his people. When asked what the greatest of all the commandments was, and there were hundreds in the Old Testament that the Jewish people would have referred to, of all the multitude of commandments, which one stands alone uniquely as the greatest? Jesus is happy to oblige and answer that question as he says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love God with everything you are. This is the most important thing. And so this is what it means to know him. This is the first and great commandment. How wonderful. There's a, a beautiful book in the Old Testament, although different people have different feelings about it at different times and for different reasons, but Song of Solomon is this beautiful portrayal of intimate love between a husband and a wife in covenant marriage. But we believe here at this church that that book is meant to convey far deeper truths than just love between a husband and wife, but it's a picture of the way God looks on his bride and loves her, the church. And so when we read in Song of Solomon 6.3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, it's referring again not just to the covenant marital love of a man and a woman, but it's referring to the love of the father for his children and of the love, the love of the bridegroom Christ for his church, his bride his body. That's his statement to you and to us forever. This is what it means to be his church. He says as he looks at us, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And we're to say the same thing to him in return. Paul, in his words to the Ephesian church, makes this even more clear. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Makes sense. Thanks, Paul. Paul has more to say about it though. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is what it means to know the Lord. What a wonderful, beautiful, and enriching picture that is. And that's one of the pictures we will look at next time. Okay, that's the first category. What do we mean by knowing him? There's obviously more we could add to that. There are more verses, more thoughts, but that's how we've parsed it out so far. Second category, we exist as a church body to glorify God, not just by knowing him in this saving way, in this intimate way, but also by growing in him. What do we mean by this? Scripturally, God gives us the picture of trees to help us understand what our lives are like. Our lives are like trees. 
And as we are planted and begin to grow up into this world, what we find is that they are trees that have bad roots, poisoned roots. We're spiritually dead. Even though there's growth of a certain kind and there's branches and fruit of a certain kind, there's no spiritual nourishment in it. There's no spiritual vitality. It's spiritual death that's hanging off the branches of our lives. And so we find this critically important principle at work in Scripture that God has to actually not just change the color of the bark or the leaves or the type of of, uh, whatever that's on the tree, but he has to change the root, the spiritual DNA, to make it a different kind of tree entirely. This is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit we were referring to earlier. And so God intends for us not just to come to know him, not just to be planted in his garden as a tree, but to begin to grow deep roots into him and his truth and to bear good fruit in our lives on this earth. And so we read this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Man-made religion always says, how can I clean up my tree and make it look like my fruit is spiritually good? Whereas the truth says, I have to make your tree the right kind of tree before you can begin to bear the right kind of fruit. This is largely what it means to grow in him. This is further defined for us in Galatians 5, verse 16. Paul talks about the war between our old self, our old tree, the flesh, and the new life, the spirit that God is putting inside of us and is working now to overcome the flesh. He says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And there's where we have a clue about what this all looks like to grow in him. You can't just do the right things because you think you have to or you're under religious obligation or you might be smote if you don't. You begin to do the right things because you want to. You want what is right. You want what is good. God is creating new affections in you and new desires to see the old things put to death on the cross with Christ and the new things come to life. And that's why Paul refers to the Spirit enabling you to do what you want to do, which are the right things. In case anyone's confused about what that looks like in real life, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's another of what we talked about last week, Paul's scary lists. Because all of us kind of probably identify with at least something on that list that's been a struggle. And so the point is not, have you ever done anything or wanted to do anything like this, but is God convicting you and drawing to you to, to agree with him about these things and to repent and to be changed and to begin to fight this battle within and to see it overcome. And what that looks like is this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against those kinds of things, there is no law, Paul says. You're already ruled by the law of the Spirit in your heart. There's no set of rules you have to follow. You're doing the right things because the Spirit in you is directing you to want the right things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This helps us understand what it means to grow in him. 
We also know that in terms of growing in him, that we're not saved by our good works or by doing the right things, but we are saved for good works. There's a critical difference there. Your good works are not how you come to God, but they're the natural result of God having brought you to himself. We read in the follow-up verse to the passage we quoted earlier, Ephesians 2.10 here, after learning that we're saved by grace, not by works, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this process of growing in him once we've come to know him, another word for this is discipleship, which simply defined means learning to follow Jesus well. This was the mission God gave to his disciples, to go into the world and to make disciples that follow Jesus well. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Discipleship is our lifelong process of growing deeper in the God who we've come to know in a saving way. 2 Peter 3.18 is a critical verse for our understanding where he uses this very word, do what? Grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then you'll notice as we go throughout this study that it's constantly being tied over and over again to the glory of God. This is one of the ways that we glorify God in our existence and in what we do and who we are by growing in him. Because he says there, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What this is getting at is that it doesn't do much good if our lips profess a love for Christ or a belief in him and yet are not accompanied by a life that backs it up or that lives it out. Our living should authenticate our good confession of faith in Christ Jesus. The reason this is so important, the warning is that lest any be found among us who would honor God with their lips and yet maintain within themselves a heart that is far away from him. This is what we read of in Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So true Christians are to use their lives and the time they have on this earth to prove the genuineness of their faith. Now, another layer of this discussion, an added element of this discipleship is that we are to learn that we have to do this in every season of our lives. Most of us, we just want to do it when things are good. We feel good, we're healthy, the family's together, things are going okay at work at least, you know, we're able to plan and save for that vacation and we've got most of the toys that we want to have and get to do most of what we want to do on the weekends and, man, but what about all the other seasons of life? What about the seasons of great financial stress or relational brokenness? What about when your body becomes riddled with disease? What about when you hear words from the doctor that you never thought you'd hear at the age you're at? What about when your children have wandered so far from the Lord and are absolutely destroying themselves spiritually and possibly physically? What about when a spouse leaves? What about when you're just depressed and you can't define the reason why? You're not sleeping well. You're always worried. You're always irritable. You're always angry. You're struggling with substance abuse. All these, all these seasons of life that are anything but fair weather. What then? Discipleship is about proving the genuineness of our faith through all seasons and circumstances of life. This is what it means to glorify God by growing in him. 
We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, in this you rejoice, which you'll, you'll see here in a minute. That's a, an odd word that you'd think would be used in what he's about to say. Most of the world would not use that word. In this you rejoice, though, for now, though now for a little while, if necessary, what? You have been grieved by various trials. Why would God permit? Why would a good, kind, and loving God permit such suffering and sadness and struggle in the, the lives of his people? Here's why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, and gold perishes, though it's tested by fire, that your faith may be found to result in praise, and you'll never guess what word, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In a very similar vein, James writes to the church and says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. That's discipleship. That's growth in Christ. That's what we need in our lives over the long haul. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is why this is in the description of who we are as a church. This is where it's going. We are to arrive one day before the living God himself as people who are now made complete in his presence perfectly mature in him, conformed to his image. That process is to be happening now so that when we get to him, we're not afraid and we're not ashamed, but we're ready, we're eager, we're excited. That's the goal. That's why discipleship is so critical to who, what our understanding is of who we are. Not only are we to be steadfast through all seasons of life, but part of our discipleship means joyfully, joyfully demonstrating our love for the Lord by eager obedience to his word. How do we approach his word if we approach it at all? Oh, I don't want to read those one verses. Lord, I know what you're going to tell me to do. Not super eager about that. Rather, a true disciple is eager to devour his word. To, they can't get through the pages enough to find out what this God has in store for my life. What are your plans, Lord? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? I want to know. I want to see. And what God would say to his people is, that's what it means to love me, to grow in me. You want the right things. We know this to be true. It says in 1 John 5, 2 through 3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And for the person who really has the Spirit of God growing in them, here's the truth. His commandments are not burdensome. In a lot of cases, I'd say, if we're being honest, that they are. They're an imposition. They're an inconvenience on our otherwise selfish desires. But for the one in whom the Spirit is growing, his commands are not a burden. They're a delight. Jesus said it so explicitly in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. God's not interested in just what rolls off your lips. He's interested in what your life looks like, how you show your love for him and how your life is lived out in obedience to him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. One last area of this second category that needs discussed, one of the most important areas of discipleship, of growing and glorifying God in our spiritual growth is in how we learn to love one another. In John 13, 34, and 35, we read this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You want to understand what it means to be his church and to be his church in the way he intends? It's a group of people who gather not just to worship and love him, but to love one another. Sometimes this is hard because sometimes we're hard to love. There's always going to be people in the church that are easy to love, and those are the people you'll gravitate toward. But everybody has an annoying trait or tendency to someone. Everyone rubs someone the wrong way. Everyone has offenses and grievances against someone. Our discipleship, our faith is proven in how we're willing to love the whole body, even when it's difficult, even when it requires much grace and patience, because we're reminded again and again, I was harder to love than you will ever be by God the Father. How hard was it for him to love us unto the point of death? How easy was that experience for Jesus on the cross? Is it harder for you and I to love each other with with our little petty differences? Not for a moment. If we think so, we are deceived. It was so much harder for God to show the kind of love he showed to us than than that which he calls us to show to one another. How can we not? If you recall from section one, the greatest commandment is to love him with all our heart. But shortly after those verses, he says, there's a second one that's also great. Almost as great, maybe not quite as great, but it's second in greatness. Matthew twenty two thirty nine. 39, it is this. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're so lenient with ourselves much of the time, aren't we? We'll give ourselves grace. We'll, we'll give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We know our own hearts, we say. We know our own motives. We meant well. Is that what we give to others? If we don't love each other from the heart, the love of the Father is not in us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, having, your, having purified your souls by your, your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, what does he say to do to the church? What does he say? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's almost like God knows us. It's almost like he puts qualifiers in there because he knows us. He's not going to say just love each other because we'll all just default and say, well, yeah, of course we love each other. We're all church. You know, I, I love my brothers and sisters. I have to. No, he put it in there specifically, earnestly from a pure heart. Like it has to be genuine. You can't force this, can you? It has to be developed in your discipleship to see others with the eyes that God sees them and with, love them with the heart with which he loves them. John is the expert on this topic and has the most to say about it in Scripture. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, he writes to the church and says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then you turn the page and you find him expounding again in chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brothers. And anytime you see the word brothers, you can assume it means sisters as well. Don't worry. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? He's talking about heart murder, if nothing else. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then his magnum opus continues as you turn the page, and in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's kind of a big word that means despite our sinfulness and being God's enemies, he's made us Jesus has made us acceptable and pleasing to God by absorbing God's wrath, and now it's deflected from, us, from off of us, and we're kind of under this umbrella, and we've, we're acceptable to the Father, and there's, there's peace and affection there. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So you see it's important there. We, we must confess the truth about Jesus. That's critical. That's a part of it. But what else has to accompany that confession? We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother and his sister. Must. Now some people might be tempted to, to be a little wearied by the number of ways John is saying what you might think is the same thing. Like, John, we get it. Is that the attitude, though, with which we should approach his word? Why would God have to say it over and over and over again to us, do you suppose? Because we need to hear it over and over and over again. Because we might think we get this, and in our living we prove otherwise. How many times does God need to say it? As many times as it takes. And apparently to him, it was at least this many times. And so may it be our delight to hear the, the same thing in different ways over and over again until we realize how serious God is about this and how close to his heart is this part of our growth in him, learning to genuinely love one another as his body. All right, so that last part of our statement of who we are as Cornerstone Community Church, we exist to glorify God by knowing him, growing in him, and leading others toward the same. This is the part that's outward focused instead of inward. This is the evangelistic arm of the ministry. This is looking to the world and the lost and wanting them to share in the same life of the gospel and the spirit that God has called us into. This is part of the driving force of what it means to be the church. 
We've referenced already John 3.16. The good news of the gospel is for the whole world. God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes would have life. And as we just read in 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The gospel is to be brought to the world. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go into the whole world, go into all nations to make disciples, baptizing them. In 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, God is calling us as his church not just to look toward one another and to love and care for each other, which surely we are called to do, but to look outward to a world that is lost and needs the gospel. What's the calling God has therefore placed upon his church? To be the light in the darkness. Matthew 5, 14, you, speaking to his people, the church, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's God's plan and mission for his church. It's part of it. The reason this is so important is that this is his chosen means. This is the vessel through which more of his sheep, who are currently lost without a pasture or a shepherd, are going to hear his voice and come into the fold. He uses his church and their outreach to do this. And what a precious promise this is in John 10, starting in verse 7. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. See, there's something holy that happens in between those two lines. I know my sheep, and then what's this holy space in here, and my sheep know me? It's the church taking this gospel into the world, and that's the means he uses for those who are yet to hear his voice, to hear that voice, and to come in and to be saved. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, and this charge Jesus has given to us to bring this message to the world. One of the ways we do this is we are to show love and compassion to all, to our neighbor. There's a difference in the Bible between brother and neighbor. There are churches and church leaders that have confused this and have, have, had, uh, have led a lot of people into confusion by trying to say that your neighbor is your brother. And brother means you have the same spirit within you. Your brother's in the Lord. And yet, God still calls us to have goodwill toward our neighbor, to show love and compassion toward our neighbor, even though it's a different kind of affection than that which we have for each other in the body of Christ. There's still a particular kind of love. 
we are to look out at this world and to pray and work toward the repentance and salvation of all. Will all be saved? No, but it's not for us to know who's, who God is drawing in and who, who will refuse him. Our job is to bring this message and leave the rest to him. Paul had this burning desire in his heart to win as many as possible with the time and the life that he had. 1 Corinthians 9.19 Though I am free from all, some of this language is really confusing, we'll sort through it another day, but uh, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He's trying to make sure they don't misunderstand what he's saying because people tend to do that. Wait, but you said this. Yeah, but what did I mean? So those parenthetical statements, Paul's making sure that he's not misquoted with sound bites. But why is he doing all this? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you have that desire in you as a member of the body of Christ to use your life to win as many as possible? Everyone has someone in their circle of influence that God can draw through you that I will never reach. I will never have access into their lives. Are you taking this seriously? This is what it means to be his church. This is our mandate As Paul said in Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to, is there an asterisk there? Everyone. Even our enemies. Love even your enemies. Pray even for your enemies. Pray that they might humble themselves and repent and be saved. Do good to everyone. There's a lengthier passage that you're familiar with, I'm sure, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We won't take the time to read through it, For the sake of time here, we're running out of it, but um, suffice it to say, it's a parable that shows with, with great racial tension, there was one who was good, who saw one in need, laying beaten in the street and cared for him. Put everything else aside, everything worldly, all the lenses through which people see each other, they put those aside, and he cared for the one who was his neighbor. That's what God is calling his church to be and to do. James 1.27 gives us another way to do this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And many translations translate it literally as visit, but many commentators would agree that it's more than just, hey, I just came to say hi for a few minutes. But it's to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's almost like we've heard about that recently. Another way God calls us to do that is this, just basic benevolence. Proverbs 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. We all have those we like to kind of keep on the outside. And yet, what does God say about those who are on the outside? Deuteronomy 10.19, love the sojourner, the foreigner, the alien. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see, it's kindness that God uses to bring us to himself. That's what he used to bring us to repentance, and it's what he calls us to express to this world to adorn our profession of the gospel. Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that what? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, and so may it be through us.
Now, there's a, a difficult part of this discussion, and that is the world typically, in many ways and in, many times, is very hostile to the Christian church. That has always been that way, and it always will be that way. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, it would claim you as its own. It would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That does not therefore mean God calls us to hate and keep away the world, but to love and pray for those who need salvation. Galatians 5.17 highlights the same thing. 1 John 2.15 highlights the same thing. We can skip through those again for the sake of time. Here's another part of this discussion as far as outreach to the world. We will be remiss if we ever think that what that means is to just show love and kindness and benevolence and to hide the truth so that we don't offend people. This is a fatal error that many ministries have made and have rendered themselves now impotent and ineffective for the gospel. John 8.32 is very clear. People will know what? The truth, and that will set them free. Now, adorn the truth with a life of true kindness and godliness, but don't withhold the truth with some misguided notion of I don't want to hurt people's feelings or push them out. No, it's the truth that will set them free. Do not hide it. Do not hide your light under a bowl. Jesus answered in Luke 5.31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you can't give those who are spiritually sick what they need if you're, if you're hiding it, if you're lying about it, so that you don't offend them. Like a doctor would be worried about offending the feelings of a patient who desperately needed a pill that could save their life, but this pill maybe had some offensive uh, color to it or, or words printed on it. Well, I better not show this to them because they might be resistant to it or be offended by it. No, it's, that's what's going to save their life. And so here's where we find this critical point in terms of our outreach to the world. We have to show love and kindness and meet physical needs of, of starvation and needed medical supplies, but we also need to bring the gospel because those people need saved from their sins. Contrary to what some organizations would have you believe, poverty doesn't mean a person is sinless and innocent before God. Their salvation is not just food. Their salvation is the gospel, forgiveness of sins. That's why at this ministry, at this church, we've always made such an effort to find those benevolence organizations that will both meet the physical needs as well as the spiritual. There has to be a holistic approach to it. If we fail on one or the other of those, then we're missing the way of God's heart. Ephesians 4.15 has been a key verse for us. Speaking what? The truth, but in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have to have truth and love. If you've been at our church for any length of time, you've heard probably a message at some point on the twin pillars of the ministry, which are truth and love. You can't have one without the other. Ministries fail when they emphasize one at the expense of the other. All right, so that's a summary. And this isn't an exhaustive statement. This is just descriptive of who we are, but there could be more points added, more scriptures added. But one last thought for you as we wrap up here. Uh, what's, what's our authority source for all these things? Who says we can believe this is true? And why should we believe that it's true? How do we know? Cornerstone Community Church is just one small local expression of the church universal, which is the whole company of the redeemed who will live forever with the Lord. And what we see is that we have to have 
an authority that drives everything we do and say and how we live. And that authority is God's word. Oh, there's a quote I was going to share about truth and love before these last verses. John MacArthur wrote this. I thought this was really good. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Now, there are times even those who preach a certain thing need to hear it. And there, there might be a, a time or two I, I would hope that he would consider the first part of that statement a little more carefully, but it's a wonderful quote all the same, and I'm happy to share it. But back to the sole authority that's informing and underpinning all we do and believe at this ministry. Here are a few last verses to show our view of Scripture, that it is fully inspired by God, meaning that he breathed every word of it out into the human authors, that it's infallible, meaning that it will never lead astray and it will always accomplish its purpose, and that it is inerrant. Those are like the three big eyes. Inspired, infallible, and inerrant. And inerrant means that it has no error in its original form. There are some, there are some issues that have cropped up where scholars and language experts, they don't know for sure what to do with a tiny word or phrase as we're moving from Hebrew and Greek into Latin into German into English. It's a difficult process. 99.9% of it, people don't really disagree about, but there are a few hard spots, and there are different English translations that will word a verse differently, and one of them's right and one of them's wrong, is the bottom line, because in some cases, they say a different word. It's not about anything that affects doctrine in any significant way. Sometimes it's as simple as punctuation or a number or, or something silly like that. But when we refer to inerrancy, we refer to in its original form, the Old Testament as Jesus received it and the New Testament as the apostles wrote it. Here are a couple verses to support this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That verse supports inspiration. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to be his earth called us to his own glory and excellence. Hebrews 4:12 God's word is alive, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We're to be sanctified by God that is made like him, made holy. Jesus said in John 17:17, 17, 17, he prayed for us to his father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, is perfect. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Oh, he will. 2 Peter 1.19-21, we have the prophetic word, that is the word of God, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, here's what Peter really wants them to know about the word of God. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it.
All right, good job, guys. You did it. You made it. Again, it's a diff- this was a different kind of message, but important that we just go through this systematically of who are we as Cornerstone Community Church fit into the greater church? Who are we? What's our identity? If anyone is confused about who we are or why we believe what we believe or what we're about, this is now a point of reference that we can go back to because thankfully we now have record of these messages, so I don't have to preach it over and over again. We can just you know send somebody a link. Here's who we are. We'll have some handouts, too, you can get, um, hopefully next week, that have all these points and verses, and you can start to study those, and that way if people ask you, uh, what, what kind of church do you go to, what do you guys like, what do you believe, you don't have to give them the Ian version, but you could give them a some version of a few verses and main ideas and points. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, thank you for your word, thank you that it shows us who we are, it teaches us who we are in relation to you, who we are to be as a local gathered body, one expression of the church part of the church universal. Lord, so many more verses could have been mentioned today. Thank you that your word is inexhaustible. Thank you for the richness of this storehouse, this treasure house. For every verse we mentioned, we probably could mention five more similar to it or su- supporting a same, same idea or thought. Lord, help us, convict us of the ways we waste our time. Help us to be people who are about your word, people of the book, the living word. May it define who we are and what we do. And may we not just have your word, but may we have your heart, Lord. We need your truth, but we need your heart, your love as well. You are love. You're not just loving, you are love, and you call us to be the same. Help us, Father, as we try to tend to our own spiritual life and health and discipleship, but also as we try to reach out to this world with the message of the gospel. Help us to know what it means to be your church, to be your people. Help us to do it faithfully. Forgive us when we mess it up, which we often do. Thank you for drawing us faithfully to yourself, Lord. We ask it all in your name. Amen.